The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com events where you can get your tickets. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's Wednesday, February the 8th, and you're very welcome to the Weekly Politics Podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. I'm joined today by a troika or a triumvirate or a trinity or whatever you're having yourself of Ireland's finest political journalists in the form of our political editor, Pat Leahy, parliamentary correspondent, Michael O'Regan, and Sarah Barden from our political staff. Later on, we'll be discussing crisis in the health service, what's going to happen with the Garda inquiry, and the decision by Stephen Donnelly, TD, to join the Fianna Fáil party. But first, here's the leader of the Free World telling Fox News about his daily routine. What time do you get up? Uh, five o'clock. All right. And you work in after you have yeah, breakfast well, or something? I read, I read the papers. I see what's going on on television. Right. I take a look. I see the lies that, you know, the, the lies of... Uh, that's right. another thing. I always got sort of good press. You know, I was a business guy. I got good press. I did good... <laughs> yeah, I know. I have never... I call it, you know, fake news. Some of the networks and some of the papers, it's so dis- the level of dishonesty where they'll take a story, they'll take something that should be a good story. In fact, sometimes I say, oh, this is going to be nice to read. I'll say, whoa. And they will purposely totally change it away. It's fake news. Patley, you just described the job you do every day. <laughs> you mean the getting up at five o'clock and reading the papers? Yeah. And then the alternative facts. <clears throat> yeah. Um, I mean... I think we know by now that Donald Trump will govern or is governing exactly the same way as he campaigned. And a key part of that was this sort of running warfare with uh, most of the uh, most of the media in, in the United States. So I think, you know, while Trump often sounds like he's talking off the top of his head and there is a kind of an undisciplined quality to if you read the transcripts of his speeches they don't they're like well. stream of consciousness or something but underneath that I think there is a hard core of uh, of political and campaigning logic and in this instance when he's talking about the media the logic his logic or his his strategic purpose is to discredit criticism of him. And uh, so, you know, there is 
for various reasons that uh, I suppose you don't need to go in, into here. There is suspicion of the mainstream media or the liberal media on behalf of, on the part of a lot of people in the United States, many of whom uh, are part of Trump's core supporters and the people he will need if he is to be re-elected because re-election will be one of the projects of this, uh, uh, of this White House. So what he needs to do is to almost delegitimize the criticism of him uh, from uh, many, of the, uh, many of the outlets in the mainstream media. And that is part of it. So when you hear him giving out about the media, don't think that he's just gassing on about stories about himself that he doesn't like. He's doing that, but there's also uh, a hard political purpose. And that it. raises a number of issues, not just in the United States, it seems to me, sir. I mean, it's not unusual for American presidents or indeed political leaders across the world to have a very adversarial relationship with the media. Nothing new about that. But the way in which the Trump administration is framing the media as the opposition in a way puts the American media in a certain kind of a corner that it doesn't necessarily want to be in or that it doesn't necessarily see itself as being in. And also, when people look at Trump, we don't just look at him in terms of what's happening politically in the United States. We look at him as the exemplar of a series of political trends that are that are happening more broadly. Uh, among those are the rise of a popular of a popular uh, extreme right. Uh, but another one is a complete distrust in traditional um, sources of information, including us in the media. I mean, I was looking at a survey only last week which showed that uh, uh, trusted media is incredibly low in Ireland. He's tapping into a sentiment, I suppose, a global sentiment that. Uh, of kind of distrust in journalism, in media. And he's creating an impression that we are, you know, we are pitted against him in a way. And as you said, uh, it's a reflection on, um, I suppose it's a reflection on the way that things are, are, are going at present. I mean, it's it's been long discussed and long debated how we've got it all so wrong. I mean, analysts, political commentators would never have said that Trump would have got the Republican nomination, would never have said he would have won the election, would never have said the Brexit would have happened. And all of those things have turned out to be the case. Um, and so there's a level of distrust and I suppose disbelief now um, amongst the general public with the media and he's tapping into that sentiment. However, uh, you know, what he is doing, it, it, he is he's lying to the American people by suggesting that, um, you know, things that the media accurately report are inaccurate. They're a distortion of the truth. And then he provides his own his own alternative facts. Um, and what the media's job, I suppose, is to do is to scrutinize them in the best way possible. Um, but the reality is that, that we the media sort of already lost the battle in one way in America because, um Trump is, is, is tapping into a sentiment, particularly in, I suppose, a part of America that's, that's poverty, rivet, poverty riveted, that like, essentially um, they don't believe the media. And he's tapping into that sentiment and creating um, this level of distrust amongst the American people with the media. So I suppose in one way, he's already won the battle and we're just playing catch I just, up. I just wonder, Michael, you know, in a world of, in the, in the words of Kellyanne Conway, alternative facts where there doesn't seem to be any particular retribution for just lying through your teeth now, as far as I can see from Trump and various members of his of his administration over the over the last couple of weeks. Where does the where does the media stand then in a in a situation where a shared understanding that there is such a thing as objective truth exists? Because that seems to be where we are now. Well, that's the challenge. I, I think Trump is under more scrutiny because of the campaign and the fact that he was lying through the campaign, uh, lying about you know Obama's 
birth certificate, all this sort of stuff, uh, lying about Clinton, lying just about everything. Uh, there is a precedent. There are precedents from American presidents hating the media. Nixon, Richard Nixon, I suppose, was the best example. Uh, Republican president, late 60s into 70s, brought down by two journalists, Woodward and Bernstein, uh, who wrote a book uh, which showed the man, the guy was unstable in his latter period in the White House, but he had very astute people around him not least his Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger. Uh, so, and it was a different era as well. He, he lied in the same way as um, uh, Trump is lying. But you didn't have social media. You didn't have Twitter. Uh, you, you didn't have uh, the internet. So it was a very different time. I'm not sure if it, he quite lied in the way that Trump is lying. You know, the, well, the, 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 the way there's a quality yeah, difference between Nixon's lies, who certainly, mm. as, as Michael said, certainly told lies about Watergate and about lots of other things. There's a famous... Um, uh, and, and one of the characteristics, if you look at the, the, the period of the Watergate investigations, was that the the lifespan of statements in the White House briefing room by Nixon's press secretary grew shorter and shorter, eventually getting to the stage where he would say that yesterday's statements were no longer operable. Um, <laughs> Which, I, which certainly has an echo in, uh, in, 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 in the, the press briefing room of Trump's White House. But I think what you were dealing with with Nixon was uh, a, a White House that actually that, that, that had, even though they didn't live up to the standards expected of, uh, of American presidents and were brought down eventually by that, that there was a sort of a fealty to the ideals of, uh, of the republic and to the norms of, uh, of American politics as practice, because Nixon was a lifelong, uh, a lifelong Indeed, politician. And the people surrounding him were people who had worked in government also, yeah. Whereas yeah. This, uh, this White House, I think, is profoundly different to that. There is an attempt to completely uh, to rewrite the rules of how American politics works and of how presidential power politics works. And, uh, and, and to that extent... I think we are dealing with something that is completely new here. Yeah, that's true, actually. Uh, and the, the other thing about Nixon, of course, is that he had a track record in politics. He had been uh, vice president. He was very good on foreign policy, uh, you know, and he was methodical and, um, you, you know, he, he looked to foreign policy achievements. If you go back to Lyndon Johnson, probably the most dynamic, the most socially, con uh, the person who achieved most in terms of the poor, and uh, civil rights and all that was Lyndon Johnson, he, more effective than his predecessor Kennedy. Now, his great phrase was, of course, lie. Let, let us see them deny it. But that was the cut and trust of politics rather than this guy who is a congenital liar and who's lying about everything and uh, who seems to have no policy. And, 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 I mean, it's completely impossible to imagine, say, Nixon saying the sort of things yes, about true. a federal judge that, uh, that Trump said casually. Uh, over the weekend. I mean, there is within the Trump White House, and I don't think any of this is accidental. I think it's quite deliberate. There is an attempt to remake the way the American constitutional and political system works to the, uh, to the advantage of their agenda and to the advantage in the case of Steve Bannon uh, of an extreme right wing uh, agenda. And I, I think that is what people are having difficulty can, can, dealing with. Can I just ask you, there, there is no doubt that, you know, that that is the policy of certain people within what seems to be quite a fractious administration already, actually, in terms of the, the, the tensions within it. But what about an even more kind of 
profound or scary in a way kind of a question, which is I've seen it suggested in a, in a couple of well-sourced, reputable pieces this week that you're actually dealing with somebody who's mentally unstable or unwell. I think there is, I mean, I suppose we don't know, but looking in from the outside, right, there is, and just judging Trump on what we can see in public, there is at the very least a deep narcissism that is very worrying for somebody in whose person is invested such power. And I, I, I think that, I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if we can say with any kind of credibility that he is mentally unstable. I, but I think there are certainly profound flaws in his psychological makeup that may lead to an awful lot of trouble. He's a megalomaniac. I mean, this this is a man who has uh, who was a businessman who strived for success, and when he got success, strived for uh, celebrity status. And now he's when he got celebrity status, he str- he strove for the biggest power he could possibly uh, attain, which was the highest office in the land, President of the United States. I mean, you just have to listen to the clip that you played. This guy gets up every morning at 5 a.m., watches CNN, reads the New York Times, the Washington Post, and finds out that fingers things that he doesn't like and then relays them to, you know, the American population by way of his Twitter account. We're living in unprecedented times. As Pat said, the manner in which he has criticised um, members of the judiciary, the manners in which the manner in which um, he has imposed a travel ban um, across across the United States. I mean, this guy won't stop until he believes, you know, that he is, you know, the most powerful person in the land and that nobody can ever touch him. He can't seem to understand. Um, that, you know, the people and, can criticise him and, or and, question and him. And clearly this is going to pose huge questions for how the checks and balances of the American Constitution and the system work over the next while, but it also poses questions for all of us outside the United States and in, in other countries. Here's the Speaker of the House of Commons, John Burko, this week. I feel very strongly that our opposition to racism and to sexism and our support for equality before the law and an independent judiciary are hugely important considerations in the House of Commons. Now, the reason John Burke was saying that was because, uh, Michael, he said he would not be in his role as Speaker of the House of Commons inviting uh, the current President of the United States to speak there. Now, you, I know, have a view on the Irish context for this. You don't think we should follow Mr Burko's lead? Uh, I, I don't, and I was pretty unimpressed by him. It's, it's very easily said in the comfort of the House of Commons, and he made the BBC News, which I presume he may have had in mind. We'd better get real here. This guy is President of the United States. We can't stand him. The hope is that he will be impeached. In the meantime, we have to live with him. And the suggestion that Andy Kenny should not go to meet the President of the United States and talk to him about, um, obviously express our views and his foreign policy and all that. Is Andy Kenny really going to do that? Uh, he, I think he, he, he'll have to do it. Yes, he will. But, you know, his, I mean, he's, he's around since 1975 in the Cotton Trust of Irish policy. He must learn something. But uh, the, other thing is, the other thing is this. Our 50,000 illegal we, 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 we use the phrase undocumented Irish, they're illegal immigrants. The whole Irish-American history, for instance, a lot of Irish-Americans voted for Trump, not because they're racist, not because they're misogynist, 
they felt alienated. A lot of Irish Americans got a job in the Trump administration. Precisely. And uh, uh, exactly, they also felt they also they also they also felt alienated under the Obama presidency, which we're now elevating to sainthood because we're comparing him <laughs> with, with the current. Uh, well, you president. know, some some people say that some of the most racist white people in the United States are Irish Americans. They, they, well, it, 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 they can be. I mean, if if you go back to. Uh, if, if, if you go back to, to we'll say, the, the old democratic uh, machine, the Mayor Daly machine and, and all that kind of thing, way back, you know, the people who helped to get Kennedy elected and all. Uh, we haven't a great history. But the, the thing is, you, we, we have to deal with as President of the United States. We also, we must invite him here. Now, he, hopefully he won't come. He probably, <laughs> he probably won't come, but we have to invite him. Supposing Kennedy decided not to go, and last week, Charlie Flanagan, the Minister for Foreign Affairs, was meeting Paul Ryan, Speaker of the House of Representatives on Capitol Hill. And he goes into Ryan to talk about the 50,000 and other issues. And the first thing he says to Ryan, listen, sorry, Paul, but um, you know our own Taoiseach, he just possibly couldn't sit in the same room with the President of the United States. But I know now you will talk away to me. It doesn't work like that. We have to get real. We've been hearing for so long, Pat, about how this is a fantastic opportunity that Ireland, among all <laughs> countries, has alone, which is every March we get to go over with this bowl of shamrock and, you know, and uh, have dinner and do all that kind of a stuff. And everybody else thinks this is fantastic. In the context of this current administration, this is a terrible burden. We'd much rather not to have to do this this year, I think, wouldn't we? Yeah, the argument from government circles, I suppose, is that, and, and it's, it's one to which Michael has alluded, is that, you know, he is the duly elected president of the United States, notwithstanding that Hillary Clinton got three million more votes, but Trump is duly and legally elected, uh, according to and, the... And, and the state deals with all kinds of unpalatable regimes in its international... Uh, well, well, indeed. Uh, I mean, say... Whatever you say about Mr. Trump, he probably won't, his administration won't execute as many people as the Chinese administration yeah. uh, executes or the, uh, the, the, um, the Saudis, various the, the, other. Uh, precisely. Uh, so countries have national interests. That's not an abstract idea. It relates to the welfare of their citizens. Does the relationship at a political and economic level with the United States work for Ireland? I think it's probably indisputable that it does. Everybody says, oh, well, if he doesn't go this year, does it mean, you know, that the, the US multinationals will uh, mm. uh, will pull out? Of, of, of course, of course it doesn't. But what is true is that American business of the type that makes up such an enormous chunk of our economy, employing hundreds of thousands of uh, of Irish people. And we see how precarious some of that can be with this morning's announcement uh, in, uh, in, in League Slip. But uh, the political relationship and the political access that Irish leaders have in Washington is important to those people. If you go into any American CEO's office, you will see pictures of him shaking hands with congressmen, senators and presidents uh, or whatever. Um, American business values its uh, political connections. And we can't ignore the value that they place on that. Having said that, I think political leaders all over the world are now facing this dilemma. Of course, they all want 
uh, harmonious relationships with the United States. And in many cases, it's the case of our nearest neighbour, they have very strong political relationships with the United States. But given the unpopularity of the current incumbent of the Oval Office, that creates political difficulties for them at home. So the tightrope that Mr. Kenny will have to walk when he's in Washington is that he has to have one eye on, uh, he has to have one eye on Dublin and one eye on the boardrooms of America. Yeah, and, and, and just briefly to wrap up on this, Sarah, I mean, I noticed kind of some European leaders, I think it was the Lithuanian Prime Minister, scoffing at Britain's claim that that, that post, post-Brexit Britain will be a bridge between the, the EU on one hand and the United States on the other. And she was saying, uh, well, we've got Twitter, we don't need a bridge. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just, just to, if I can briefly just go back to what Michael and Pat were talking about, I think the idea that Enda Kenny wouldn't visit um, the President of the United States on St. Patrick's Day is quite farcical, to be frank. I think any of us who have travelled um, with the with the prime minister, prime minister, um, with the Taoiseach to Washington, know the value in which the, these meetings have. I mean, yes, you can question um, what exactly the Taoiseach will say to Donald Trump when they're having their meeting in the Oval Office, and I think there is value in saying that the, the um, as Leo Varadkar called the smiley clappy. Uh, ceremony that takes place when the bowl of shamrock is is traded between and um, the Taoiseach and the prime and, and the president that should end and I don't think it would be fitting with this uh, current administration and I don't think the Taoiseach would want a picture of himself and Donald Trump smiling sharing a bowl of shamrock to be on the front of the Irish Times the day after St Patrick's Day but we cannot to see how he can avoid it it, it's going to be extremely difficult because, OK, you, you stop the precedent now, you stop the practice right now. I mean, it, it may not have an effect on future administrations, but it could potentially do so. And there is one day in the entire year where the Irish uh, Taoiseach has the ear of the United States uh, president. And I don't think any right-minded Taoiseach would give And we know he pays attention to whoever was the last person who spoke in his ear at any given moment. So, you know, that that, that, that shouldn't be undervalued. Listen, we're going to move it. There is an election taking place on the island of Ireland now. You wouldn't really know it in terms of how excited people are about it in Dublin. But here's the leader of the DUP, Arlene Foster, this week. Maybe we should have a Polish language act as well, because there are more people in Northern Ireland that speak Polish than speak Irish. So... Uh, I mean, this characterisation of we should have given something uh, to Sinn Féin uh, to keep them appeased is not the way I do business. If you feed a crocodile, they're going to keep coming back and looking for more. Uh, politics as usual in Northern Ireland there, Michael. I must admit, that's an argument which I've heard um, over over pints in Dublin pubs as well about how many speak, people speak Polish as opposed to how many people speak Irish on a day-to-day basis in the Republic. But I think Arlene Foster and the DUP are using the argument for somewhat different purposes. They are. I mean, and she, she's, she's absolutely of traditional unionist hue and background. I mean... Uh, that was an extraordinarily strong statement. The, the, reason, the Irish language is different. You know, it used to be the national language. Whatever you feel about it, whatever the way you feel it was taught in school or whatever, um, Irish nationalists of the North have a claim to it. Uh, but uh, uh, now whether this is just the hard line to impress some of the more militant elements of unionism uh, and garner votes is, is another matter. But uh, it, it, I, I think it would have turned a lot of people off. Uh, and she's she's quite bitter, obviously, perhaps because of the you know the family history attacked by the IRA and all that. But what she's trying to do, uh, Arlene Foster is under immense pressure. I think there is a chance, 
small chance, uh, I think, I think it's an, an unlikely outcome, but there is a chance that the DUP's vote collapses to the extent that Sinn Féin are the largest party uh, after the election. Now, as I say, that's unlikely, but given the pressure that Arlene Foster has been under uh, as a result of the uh, Cash for Ash scheme, collapse of the, uh, which caused the collapse of the executive, I don't think you can, uh, I don't think you can rule that out. So what Arlene Foster is doing is she is trying to turn the uh, election, all elections uh, in the North are to a greater degree or otherwise are They're sectarian. binary elections. There are essentially two, two elections happening side by side. So what she is trying to do is raise the prospect of scary Sinn Féin um, uh, with their Irish Language Act, which incidentally is a commitment both governments entered into uh, and not the, the Irish language doesn't, uh, uh, doesn't belong to Sinn Féin in the North or anywhere else. But... Um, uh, but she is trying to raise that prospect amongst unionist voters of uh, Sinn Féin's success and imposing all these things on uh, on unions. Now, there's no doubt in my mind that in the event of there being an Irish Language Act that provided parity of esteem and the right to, you know, uh, to discuss things in Parliament and or in, in, in Stormont in Irish and so forth, that, the, that Sinn Féin would use this to drive the unionists around the twist. But uh, that having been said... I think it's clear what Arlene Foster is uh, is at. And it is, I think, an admission of political weakness and electoral vulnerability on her part. And it's an extraordinary turnaround, Sarah, from the, the election, which was, you know, quite, quite recent election, in which Arlene Foster was the kind of gem in the in the DUP's crown. You know, it was very much, it was all about Arlene. And now her, her stock has, has fallen so low so quickly. Yeah, and you can sense almost, this, I suppose, the sense of desperation on Arlene's part um, to galvanise the unionist vote. However, I suppose it also shows and the manner in which she delivered uh, the speech and the, um, I suppose, the, the, the frustration that was evident in her, vo- in her voice is also the reason that the DUP are in the position that they are in. Had Arlene Foster, um, I suppose, not shown the, the arrogance to, to liaise with Sinn Féin ahead of um, the election, we wouldn't be in the position that we're in now. But it also creates a... a, a a difficulty between Arlene Foster and Michelle O'Neill. And um, Michelle O'Neill has been very reluctant, I suppose, to get involved in the tit-for-tat slang that, that goes between um, the two parties during any general election campaign, whereas Arlene Foster has come out quite strong. So it's very difficult, given what has happened beforehand, the difficulty the power-sharing um, now faces. Well, it'll be very interesting to see how, very what, what dispensation see. will happen after the election. Oh, I must say, just th- thinking in terms of what you're saying there and in terms of what, what Pat's saying, um, Michelle O'Neill and Sinn Féin probably benefit from every time uh, Arlene Foster issues a statement because of the, the strange dynamics of, of Northern, of Northern Irish politics. Self-reinforcing nature of, and as as you're saying, Pat Sinn Féin don't own the Irish language, but every time Arlene Foster comes out with something like that, it will appear that that they do own the Irish language. We will be continue to cover the the, the campaign over the over the next while. But Sarah, you have a a piece on the front of uh, this morning's newspaper in relation to this investigation into the Gardaí, which is embedding. I just Claire Daly was speaking on RT Morning Ireland this morning. I just want to have a quick listen to what she was saying. In a situation where the person under investigation is the person who is de facto in charge of the organisation. In actual fact, it's probably even more pertinent that they would stand aside because they're in a position of influence over evidence or the conduct of the organisation and so on. Now, the reason why the Northern Irish Assembly collapsed was ultimately because Arlene Foster refused to stand aside uh, during the investigation in, in Northern Ireland into the Cash for Ash business. Now, shouldn't, it doesn't Claire Daly have a point there about the Garda Commissioner? She absolutely, she has a point. I mean, um, 
The difficulty with what has been alleged here, and just to give a bit of context, is that there is uh, claims made by Superintendent Dave Taylor, who was for the head of the Garda Press Office, that he was instructed by Miss O'Sullivan and the former Commissioner Martin Callanan to spread malicious um, and false rumours about Sergeant Morris McCabe, who at the time was blowing the whistle on a number of um, issues of malpractice within Angarda Shiakana. Now, Dave Taylor um, is the subject of an investigation um, on another matter within Angarda Shiakana, and as a part of that, his phones have been confiscated. Um, so, uh, Noreen O'Sullivan is now the subject of a commission of investigation where... Um, the source of the information is within her possession in terms of the investigation into Dave Taylor. She has obviously the she could potentially have evidence um, with regards to what has been alleged on these devices. So it's 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 the same difficulty that has arisen with GSOC. GSOC are given these powers to investigate allegations um, of malpractice from Garda whistleblowers, and they can't access records or files because that power still lies with Garda Shiakona. So. It is very difficult to see how Noreen O'Sullivan can remain in position and retain the confidence of the force and retain the confidence of the uh, on the of the government when she's the subject of a nine month investigation into allegations that she was aware of or at the very sorry she was instructed or at the very least aware of a campaign against Morris McCabe. So Claire Daly has a, has an extremely valid point, but the uh, the government stressed last night. Um, and Tony to Francis Fitzgerald stressed last night that there would be no question of her standing aside from her position despite this inquiry underway. Is that tenable, Michael? It is, I think, for the moment. But I think when we get the rest of the O'Neill report and all that, and as events pan out, it may not be. No, Tony has said that there's no prima facie case against anybody uh, uh, and this. It's a difficult one to call for the, minister, for the Tony Minister of Justice. Uh, because if the Garda Commissioner does stand aside, that's a huge, that's a huge development. Uh, the allegation is is a, quite extraordinary. I mean, this is serious, serious, serious stuff. And if proven, and you know, the processes take its course. If proven, of course, it will, it 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 it, it will shake the Garda Shikana to its core. But uh, for the moment, I I think it seems the Minister has made the right call. I I don't know if time will prove that. <laughs> Very, yeah, just to, just to bookend that, um, I mean, commissions of investigation often serve two purposes. One, uh, to find out facts in any particular uh, in any particular instance, and second, to kick in the immediate politics of uh, an affair to touch uh, and to take it off the agenda for a period uh, for a period of time. My sense is that that is what this will do. I don't think there's any huge doubt that there was a campaign against uh, Sergeant Morris McCabe. The question that will be answered by the uh, commission, I suppose, is whether Noreen O'Sullivan was aware of it or directed it. Um, the compli- and presumably other senior guard too. Yeah, but the she's the one, I suppose, in the uh, I suppose she's the one in the spotlight of it. Um, Michael is right in that there doesn't seem to be any weakening of the uh, of the back of the government's backing for her. How long that will be tenable, uh, I don't know. See, it's difficult as well. We're slightly blindsided in the sense that we haven't seen Irlonial's report. A redacted version will be published today, so we're basing you know, our, our commentary here solely on the fact that a commission of investigation has been established. Um, Earl O'Neill, you know, may have found something or may not have found something that could potentially be damning 
to um, the Garda Commissioner or indeed the former uh, Garda Commissioner Martin Callanan. So that might or, impact on a, on a decision. Exactly, because um, the reality is considering the makeup of the 32nd doll, you know, um, if Fianna Fáil um, or Sinn Féin for that matter put down a motion of no confidence in Noreen O'Sullivan. We're in a different ball game altogether. Um, but, th- you know, we should stress, I suppose, that th- this, these are just allegations. There's no one saying that Noreen O'Sullivan, um, you know, has done anything wrong at this point. And if she does stand aside, there's almost the implication that she's guilty of, of, a, of a crime if she does so. Although um, that's not what we said about Arlene Foster. Indeed. Uh, but I think, you know, just given the, the position that Noreen O'Sullivan is in to retain the confidence of the force, perhaps it could be in her interest to right, do This so. isn't the only area where the government's under pressure this week. Here's Minister for Health, Simon Harris. I feel, I feel ashamed. Um, I feel heartbroken, um, both as the Minister for Health, but even more importantly, as a citizen in this country. I don't think there's any sugarcoating of this. I don't think there's any possibility or any point in anybody saying anything other than that this is this is wrong. This is mm-hmm. something that as a country um, we can't stand over. It's something that I as Minister for Health can't stand over and it does make me feel ashamed. Ashamed and heartbroken. Simon Harris on Clare Byrne Live on RT1 there. Um, Pat, yet again, uh, the Department of Health is a graveyard of political ambitions. I don't know about that, to be honest. It is certainly a trial of fire for political ambitions. But if you look at the last, what, half dozen health ministers or so, Brendan Howland, Brian Cowan, Micheál Martin, Michael Noonan, they all went on to higher office after uh, a stint in the, fire. In the department, uh, a stint in the Department of, uh, of Health. Perhaps... Uh, Mr. Harris's predecessor, uh, Leo Varadkar, may follow that uh, follow that track, or maybe he will go the way of uh, of of James Riley. But what is certainly true is that uh, health is the most difficult of the line jobs in cabinet. It presents uh, political challenges on a daily or weekly basis for whoever is minister for health. Now, um, the defence of recent ministers for health has always been that look and we heard this from Simon Harris yesterday uh, you know I don't run the health service I don't run the the HSE that's Tony O'Brien's the the HSE chief that's his responsibility I make policy the department makes policy and it provides funding and it's up to uh, the people who run the health service who run the hospitals and so forth to make sure that the services for which they've been uh, for, for which they've been given funds operate to uh, uh, to, a, to a degree of satisfaction As, uh, alongside that however is the political reality that the minister for health of the day will end up carrying the can for uh, for you know disappointments and scandals and so forth because they have the one, to uh, in a democratic system seen. don't mm-hmm. they yeah now the extent to which they have power over the nuts and bolts of the system is the sort of labyrinthine equation I think that uh, that would take some considerable time to unpick certainly by Simon Harris's speech yesterday and his, his speech in the, the doll yesterday and his public statements on the matter he is able to direct them to do certain things. So as a re- direct result of this programme on Monday night, there will be an operating theatre opened in uh, Crumlin Children's Hospital for children with, uh, to provide services for children with scoliosis. So at the one, on the one hand, Simon Harris and all other ministers for health are saying, look, I can't micromanage the health service. On the other hand, when a problem like this arises and he's called to political account for it, he 
directs them to do particular and things. And we gather from today's Irish Times again that uh, senior members of the uh, senior staff members of the HSE feel that they were, quote, thrown under the bus by the minister in that interview on Monday. That can't help, can it? Well, there's always been a difficult relationship between the Minister for Health and the and the uh, Chief Executive of the HSE because the reality is um, things don't cross the Minister for Health's desk until they're already a crisis. Um, the HSE never, there hasn't been an accountabil- accountability uh, factor with regards to the HSE telling the Minister for Health. They only tell them when they have to tell them. Um, and you'd be damned if the HSE rang Simon Harris or, or any other Minister for Health um, to tell them about so-called secret waiting lists unless they knew that the RTE programme was coming out because that's the manner in which the HSE operates. I mean, Simon Harris, since he's come into office, has done nothing but apologise for the HSE's um, inadequacies in a way. Um, I mean, Pat refers to it in, in his piece today in, in, in the paper Um Many ministers have gone on to, you know, this is, a, I suppose, a, a blaze of fire for, for Simon Harris, but and many, many ministers who have come before him have gone on to bigger and better things. But the reality is that the HSE remains the same. It still remains unaccountable and untransparent. No, Sam, sorry. Just on that, the bit I don't understand is midday yesterday, the Taoiseach said, this theatre is there in Crumlin Hospital. It can't be opened. We don't have the personnel. personnel. A few hours later, quarter to six, the minister was able to come into the doll and says it'll be open in April. What happened in the few hours uh, uh, between what the Taoiseach had to say and the minister had to say and why did it take a television programme to speed it up? Well, I think we know the answer to that. That is real politics. Listen, Simon Harris was first elected to the doll for the Wicklow constituency in 2011, a fresh-faced TD. Another fresh-faced TD in that constituency was Stephen Donnelly, elected as an, as an independent then. Uh, he's been in the news uh, this week also. Here he is talking to Drive Time on Radio 1. Uh, Fianna Fáil, because what's important to me, which I've consistently advocated for, is we need new thinking. The centre needs to hold. It needs to have a reimagine a better way forward that's much more inclusive, much more sustainable. And um, we're going to have to have a lot more ambition. As you know, I've consistently advocated for a stable tax base for more investment yeah, in public services. But explain to me why but, you Mary, have joined on, the if, party. Now, why you have joined but Mary, the I'm, party? I'm trying to, I'm trying past, to answer your question. This is what you said with you know a leader who was in the cabinet when the IMF came to town. This is the no, party I, you've I appreciate. To I, I appreciate that. Michal Martin is a self-confessed Republican Social Democrat. I am a proud Social Democrat. So there, there's no issue there. There's no issue there, Michael O'Regan. It's a completely. He's finally found his natural home. Yes, there's more joy in heaven, etc., etc. Over the return, <laughs> uh, yeah. particularly when it's the soldiers of destiny. Hugh, this is a career move. Uh, nice man, decent guy, bright, and every. This is a career move. Just look at it the way the way. What, Look at Wicklow, right? Five-seater, uh, two Fine Gael seats, uh, one Fianna Fáil <coughs> seat, Sinn Féin seat and Stephen Donnelly. Sinn Féin seat safe. The vulnerable, the vulnerable seat here is one of the Fine Gael seats. So Stephen Donnelly is there. It hasn't worked out with the Social Democrats. Uh, he's pushing an open door, joining Fianna Fáil. It's a very, very obvious move. The sitting Fianna Fáil TD, Pat Casey, is rural base in Glendalough. Um, uh, Stephen Donnelly will be chasing the urban vote. He's made a de- he's made a calculated political decision. It happens all the time, all the time in politics. Cathy uh, Sheridan in the Irish Times today, which is a very good piece, a, which excellent piece. She says he's counting on electoral amnesia. Of course he is, but uh, mind look, you, if l- l- look at the recovery of Fianna Fáil. Look, l- l- look historically. <laughs> At the way, do you remember Des O'Malley saying Charles Howe is unfit for public office? Charlie Howe has Des O'Malley thrown out of the party. They share power together. 
this is another U-turn and a long you're, list you're, of U-turns. You're, you're a terrible cynic, uh, it, it, Michael. There's one thing, however, that recent Irish political history uh, tells us, Michael referred to the resurgence of Fianna Fáil, it's that uh, one of the outstanding qualities of the electorate <laughs> is, uh, is, is, uh, is amnesia. Uh, you know, I think um, we asked at the press conference announcing this, we asked even... Donnelly, uh, all, all, all these questions. One of his answers particularly struck me was uh, when he was saying that he'd been talking to people in his constituency and his supporters uh, in in recent months and they had been urging him to join a party. And when he asked them what party he should join, a great majority of them suggested that he should join Fianna Fáil, according to his account. I find that extraordinary. You don't believe him? I'm, Are these a little bit like Andy Kenny's imaginary friends on the street? I feel... <laughs> I I feel that there are surely alternative facts <laughs> that to, we could that we to could be summon. to be fair, Sarah to, to to Stephen Donnelly. He sort of came to to politics late as a kind of fresh face, but he always put himself forward as coming from a sort of managerial background that he wanted to get things done, roll up his sleeves, and help get the country back on the road. And it, it, it's rational enough in that case to align yourself with a major political party which stands a very good chance of being in government in the next few years. I think Stephen Donnelly, when found finding the Social Democrats or establishing the Social Democrats, his one aim was to get into power. And when the uh, Roaching Shortall and Catherine Murphy and he were offered the opportunity to enter government uh, in 2016, Roaching Shortall and Catherine Murphy put a block on it. Subsequently, he left the Social Democrats. He then toyed with the idea of remaining as an independent. Then he toyed with the idea of joining Fine Gael and eventually he found his feet in Fianna Fáil. Uh, Does that my, mean he doesn't believe in anything? I, I, I wouldn't go that far. He just wants power, and uh, he, that's not he, a crime, of course, in politicians. I mean, that he sounds terrible. The words "he wants power" is, sounds yeah. terrible, but actually, wanting power in but order that, to yeah, do that something that shows a level of uh, you know a level of ambition on Stephen Donnelly's part. I suppose where he parks his hat is indeed the problem. And at the same press conference, Pat is referring to uh, Gavin Riley from Today FM read him out a number of statements that he'd met made about the Fianna Fáil party. You know, calling and. Uh, them every name under the sun and criticising them for everything, and then suddenly finding um, that he put his his hat on their on their on their table. So I think you know, like there has to be a level of scrutiny as to why Stephen Donnelly has, has made his decision to go with Fianna Fáil. And and, and as Cathy says in her piece today, it's a it's a version of amnesia on Stephen Donnelly's part. The basic trade off of politicians is to, uh, you know, use political and grubby means to achieve power and once in power to do good for their for their fellow citizens and the the the, 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 the metier of politics is in making yes, these and, personal and, 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 and we compromises in this, and we in this room probably all get that Pat but just to come back circularly to where we actually started at the end and this is touched on in, in, in Cathy Sheridan's piece as well increasingly that's characterised as a grubby search for for wealth and power and pure self-interest in the way the politicians are seen by the by, by the general public, as opposed to what we're talking about, the rational pursuit of power in order to achieve certain ends. It is ever thus in, uh, uh, in, in politics. Sometimes we pay too much attention to the grubby means rather than the noble ends. But sometimes for particular politicians, the ends are not noble. Sometimes the means become the end uh, for politicians and you have to look no further than um, uh, than the White House for, uh, on for example of that. The, on that simultaneously profound and shallow note, we shall leave it there. Thanks very much indeed to Pat, Sarah and to Michael. That's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks also to our producer Declan Conlon and engineer JJ Vernon. Remember, you can mail me at hlinehan at irishtimes.com or you can find me on Twitter. But until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening.